Each year, Sport Calgary hosts its popular all-sport one-day event in June. This is an opportunity for thousands of children to try a new sport for free. Registration will open in May. Check www.sportcalgary.ca for more details. And if it doesn't open in May, those details will still be at www.sportcalgary.ca. We'll tell you when we're going to run it. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Rob Kerr. Welcome to the original Six Feet Podcast, or the original Six Feet Conversation, really, podcast. That's what it is. And it's kind of apropos that it's original Six, because we've got a hockey guy today. No, 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 no. We got the hockey guy today. Oh, am I excited about this conversation. Um, he is a legend. He is an author. Um, but most importantly, he is the Hall of Fame voice of your Calgary Flames. Peter Marr, everybody. Um, This was an easy get. This was one of my first calls when we said we were going to do these conversations. Uh, We wanted to get the Hall of Famer here. Um, Of course, Pete honored uh, with the Foster Hewitt Award by the Hockey Hall of Fame. I believe, last count, Pete is in seven Halls of Fame. So uh, that's a heck of a number right there. Um, really excited that Pete could spend it. And he, and he was happy to do it. Don't get me This was not, we did not do any arm twisting at all. What is going to be really cool about this conversation for me and maybe some of you who may have remembered um, my time on the old radio station and a little segment we would, which was the NHL Insider with Peter Marr. We do that every day at five o'clock on, on, on the radio. Um, it was my favorite segment. Uh, it was wind up Pete and let him go. That's what this turned out to be. Um, I I thought we were gonna we just got into straight stories. Pete was on fire, uh, was remembering, and we we told we talk about all three Stanley Cup trips for the Calgary Flames organization. Uh, some stories maybe you've heard in the past. Some stories maybe you haven't heard before, which I'm I'm really excited to share with you. Um, Pete, by the way, recently uh, last year I'll say uh, wrote a book with George Johnson called If These Walls Could Talk, Stories from the Calgary Flames. You can get it online. Um, you can get it at Amazon, wherever you're getting your books these days. Might make for some interesting reading if you're looking for something. Uh, other than that, he's an active member of the Calgary Flames alumni. You can see him at games. Uh, but for me, arguably outside of my father, I'm not sure I've had a bigger influence in my life than Peter Marr. What a mentor he was, what a friend he has been. Uh, nobody but nobody taught me more about this business uh, and more about the game of hockey, quite honestly, than Peter Marsh. So this was an honor for me. Sit back, enjoy. This is going to take you back a little ways. This is all storytelling and fun. And just before we go there, just a reminder, Sport Calgary conducts research into sports issues in our city. Did you know that the gross municipal amateur sport product in Calgary is over $1.2 billion per year? Visit www.sportcalgary.ca to learn more. Ladies and gentlemen, with no further introduction, here he is, the man, the myth, the legend, my friend and yours, Peter Marr. Going to roll some tape. Now, the amazing thing about technology for you and I is so incredible, right? Like, um, we, if, if, fortunately, this is happening when it's happening, because if it happened 30 years ago, we couldn't do things like this. At least we have technology with us this time. <laughs> Yes, technology has made a big difference here in this isolation time. <laughs> How are you making out, my friend? How are you holding up? I'm holding up pretty well, pretty well so far. Um, you know, keeping myself uh, isolated and um, keeping relatively busy as I uh, provide of this date and flame history for the um, 
for the Flames uh, alumni as they're putting them out on their uh, their social uh, websites and uh, and uh, platforms and so on to entertain some of the fans with some history. And, and there is no shortage of history, Pete. This is, we're starting to get into the sweet spot of actually history, right? Yes, indeed, definitely. Uh, you know, this time of the year is the, the latter stages of the regular season and then into the uh, playoffs, so... There is no shortage of, uh, of exciting and uh, eventful times that I uh, can look back upon now uh, as I go back uh, selecting each date uh, down toward the end of the season. In fact, I've already finished right up until June the 7th, which is the last date of a year, a season the Flames have ever played a game. That, of course, was in that tremendous playoff run in 2004 uh, when they went to the Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final and lost on June 7 uh, in uh, Tampa Bay 2-1. to one. Um, what? But they really won the series in Game 6. <laughs> which was two days before that, June the 5th. However, they didn't count that goal. <laughs> yes, um, I love the fact that that has never, ever left you. Um, and can you, you, even when Jay Feaster was in town, you had no problem reminding him of that fact. No, no, I certainly uh, made the point to uh, bring that about to Jay when he was uh, uh, working with the Flames in, in a general manager's uh, capacity and, and uh you get a little bit of a chuckle out of it sometimes from him. Some other times he'd get a little bit upset about it. But uh, <laughs> uh, but he, he realized in the end and showed me his Stanley Cup ring. And, of course, the Flames didn't get any Stanley Cup ring from that uh, 2004 run, which was such a tremendous, tremendous run. I mean, what a lot of people uh, may have forgotten about that is that that team uh, had uh, gone seven straight years with no playoffs and uh, started off that 03-04 season uh, not very well. In fact, I well recall uh, on, I believe it was November the 18th, a game in Edmonton in which uh, the Oilers won, dropping our guys into, um, into last place in the, in, the, uh, in the West and um, flying back on the charter flight uh, that night. Daryl Sutter was sitting in a seat across from me, and he wasn't very happy. And I remember when we arrived at the uh, airport and he was departing, uh, he said to me, be around tomorrow. Uh, I may be doing something uh, trade-wise. And sure enough, around 10 in the morning, got the word that he had made the trade with San Jose to acquire uh, Mika Kiprasov, who wasn't even playing with San Jose at the time. He was their number three goalie. And Kiprasov came in, and immediately the fortunes of the uh, Flame team changed, and uh, they went on to uh, not only make the playoffs and end that seven-year playoff famine, but then uh, knock off first-place teams of Vancouver, Detroit, and uh, San Jose era before taking on Tampa in that uh, Stanley Cup final. So that was an absolutely incredible, incredible run. I I remember Mika Kiprasov's first game. It was against the Montreal Canadiens, and I want to say he won 2-1, or they won 2-1. But, exactly right. But Pete, there was something in that game, wasn't there? And I know it's, it's through the lens of history and, and hindsight, but you could almost see in that game that there was something special about this guy who was just a, really a cast-off from San Jose. Yeah, he made some incredible big saves in, in that game, and I think it started to give the players in front of him uh, some confidence, which they certainly hadn't had uh, prior to that. Uh, Roman Torek, of course, had started the year as the number one goalie, uh, and then he, he, of course, uh, was injured, wasn't playing well anyway, and uh, and then the call went out to get the Kiprasov. He was the number three goalie in in San Jose, and um, and probably the only reason that uh, that the Flames ended up getting him was that Daryl Sutter 
who was the general manager coach of the Flames at the time, was coach of that San Jose team the previous season until he was fired in early December. And so he knew of uh, Kiprasov and, um, uh, you know, put it into the back of his mind, I guess, that he could make a deal at some point to get him. He would, and he, and he did, making that trade with, uh, with the uh, Sharks that brought him to uh, Calgary for a uh, second-round uh, draft pick. And um, the team just kind of took off right from there. And, um, you know, uh, later as things developed, I mentioned to uh, Daryl, I said, you know, when you made this trade for Kiprasov, it certainly made a big difference in the team. And he's played so outstandingly. Uh, did you anticipate that when you got him? He said, well, I knew he was a good goaltender. I didn't think he was going to be this great, as he certainly turned out to be that. I believe he may be, Kiprasov may be, the very last goalie in the history of the National Hockey League to play seven straight years where he's played 70 or more games. And people forget how uh, a workload that he had. Not so much in that first year when he arrived here. As, uh, we also have a tendency to forget that after he got off to such a good start with the team and the team started to, to win a bunch of games and, and get moving up in standing, he sustained a knee injury that put him on the sidelines for almost a month. And at that time, J.B. McLennan came in and played, and uh, Roman Turek uh, was healthy again, and he played, and the team just continued to go. And then when he came back, it, um, it just stormed into the, the into the playoffs and uh, went on from there. I, You know, it, it's funny. You brought up the name Roman Turek. And um, as the host of overtime at that point, I'll never forget that break, that, or break, but that injury that Kiprasov had, and it became make or break for Roman Turek. And every time he won, there was callers that say, you know what, Roman Turek should be the number one. And, and every time he lost, get rid of Roman Turek. I just, <laughs> I, I remember, and if I remember correctly too, Pete, Mika Kiprasov came back early from that injury too, right? Yes, he did, yeah, because he was supposed to be out a little bit longer than than, uh, than, he, than he took. Yeah. And uh, came back earlier, and uh, you know, right away he took over that number one position. And then at that point... Nobody wanted to see anybody else in, in the net. You mentioned you mentioned Roman Turek. He's a, he's an interesting bit of flame history. He's the only goaltender in uh, team history to get a shutout in his first two starts. Uh, he uh, joined the team in the off season in 2001, and uh, he got a got a shutout in his very first game on opening night. And then the next game, two days later, he came in and got another shutout. So at that point, the Flames felt they had themselves a super goalie right there but then his fortunes kind of fell by the wayside and uh, you know as you mentioned uh, um, he had that up and down time in in 04 and eventually of course would move on since Kiprasov had taken over but and but the stories are almost eerily similar aren't they Pete and not, not necessarily in San Jose they were a good team they weren't a Stanley Cup team but Roman Turek was part of that Dallas organization wasn't he in 1999 yes he was and, and he had a couple of really outstanding seasons there with uh, with the um, uh, with the, the stars, and then for some reason they moved him on to St. Louis, and yeah. that's where the Flames got him from in a trade for uh, you know for three players: uh, Fred Brathwaite, uh, who was the Flame number one goalie uh, prior to uh, Tura coming here with that trade. Daniel Kachuk uh, was another Flame player that was moved on in that deal, as well as Sergei Varlamov. Uh, the Flames gave up three uh, players in in exchange for Turek, and as I say, he started off really well uh, here in his time with the uh, Flames, and then uh, kind of uh, didn't have the the uh, the con- consistency. Uh, you wouldn't expect him to get a shot at every game, but he, he got to a point where he was giving up a lot of goals. Of course, with the team that um, you know was uh, giving up a lot of shots on goal as well back in those days in in 01 and 02, 03 in that range before uh, things got turned around, and you know. 
another big thing about that uh, run in 03-04 is how uh, Kiprasov played so well in the Nets and, and the defense played well. And even though in the playoffs they, there was at one point they played without four regular defensemen in the playoff <laughs> run and had guys coming up from the minors that, that, that moved in and played tremendously. I mean, Mike Commodore is a, is a legend here in Calgary now. People forget he played only five regular season games it's during that old three oh four season, but then he came up when the injuries were around in the playoffs and uh, became uh, quite a quite a staple with the team with his uh, uh, flowing hair and his attitude and, and of course, uh, giving to charity and all that type of thing. So uh, there, there's all kinds of interesting sideline stories. Isn't it the craziest thing? Because you and I do some work with the club and, and we do some work with alumni. And I, I always, whenever I'm working with Mike Commodore in front of a, a crowd, the first question I ask is, does anybody, can anybody tell me how many games Mike Commodore played for the Calgary Flames? Oh, he played a couple hundred. He played 150. It's ridiculous. He played 18 regular season games, correct? Over the span of two years. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's insane. pretty amazing. Pretty amazing how he, uh, you know, how he's developed such a reputation here in Calgary in a positive vein and had played so few games for, for the team. But it was all about that run in uh, in 2004. And, of course, uh, after that, he, he was gone. And the next year, there was no hockey at all as uh, the NHL was uh, shut down in a labor uh, labor dispute. And, of course, he moved on and got himself a Stanley Cup ring with uh, the Carolina Hurricanes in, in 2006. So, yeah, he had a short time here, but that certainly... Uh, uh, made the most of it, as, as you would say, and now back here and uh, being involved in all kinds of activities on radio and doing some work with the alumni and also other charitable events in, in, in the uh, in the city. So to me, it's an amazing story, really, when you uh, think about it. But you're right, most fans think he played about 200 games with the team. Uh, I just want to put a little bow on the Roman Turek Calgary story. And I mentioned about how people, when Kiprasov was injured, it seemed like this test for Roman Turek. But the Flames would trade Jamie McLennan at the trade deadline, and Roman Turek became the backup. And, Pete, you'll remember, down the stretch, and I think it was a shutout, but he had a tremendous game in St. Louis. And, and I remember that fans all of a sudden, well, we got to find a way to play Roman Turek. You know, maybe Roman Turek should play on the road. I mean, it was just crazy. But what a, a, a wacky relationship uh, that goalie had with the fans of the city. Yeah, right. I, I, I don't know. I can't kind of forget here right now which game it was that you were talking about there, whether it was St. Louis or another one. But I remember his uh, great performance on on that uh, that yeah. night and how, uh, yeah, I drew again, getting him uh, some favorable vibes from, from the fans here in, uh, in in Calgary. But, of course, when Kippershoff would go back in, they kind of made everybody forget that uh, that Kippershoff was definitely the, the number one guy. The In your time... Is the voice of the Calgary Flames, you would call Flames Stanley Cup games on three occasions, in 86, in 89, and 2004. What was it about 2004, like 86? I mean, they only won one cup, and that was 89, and that's always going to be special. But what was it, Pete, about 2004 that it just it seems different? Now, I know it's the more recent, so there's recency bias to it, but you saw it when you know when Jerome McGinley was retired at the Dome, his number retired last year. Uh, it went on so long because anything connected to 2004 and the fans went ballistic. Well, I think there's a, a number of reasons that make 2004 stand out more than you know the other two that you uh, talked about. And I think the biggest, well, the, one, uh, the big thing or one thing was the uh, fact that the city 
by 2004, it was twice as big, almost, uh, from what it was in, mm. in the 80s, uh, like 86 and 89. And the other thing is, was that the 04 team was such a tremendous underdog. I mean, nobody expected them to even make the playoffs that year, uh, let alone uh, go on a run that uh, would see them, uh, you know, take it to Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final. I think that was uh, the, you know, the underdog factor definitely came into play there. You know, you go back to that old start of that 03-04 season, the saddle alone was half empty for uh, for some of the play oh, games yeah. that they played yeah. uh, in, in their home uh, rink, uh, given the fact that they hadn't been in the playoffs for those seven years and gotten off to kind of uh, gotten off to not such a very good start. But once they uh, started to win, the sellout started, and I think they went on for about 200 in a row, going through several uh, seasons of uh, getting the Saddle Dome uh, filled for every game that the Flames played, and the Sea of Red became such a big thing in that uh, in that run in, in 2004. And, and but to me, I think that the biggest thing was the underdog factor. Uh, you know, everybody loves an underdog, and when uh, you know they got into the playoffs uh, with a couple of games left in the regular season. Uh, when Jerome McGinley scored the only goal in a game against Phoenix and in the Saddle Dome, and uh, that you know ended that seven-year uh, playoff drought, and then uh, when they went in and upset uh, Vancouver uh, in seven games, and that was such a, an up and down, back and forth series, and then a series against Detroit where the Red Wings were the number one team in the league. They had about seven or eight Hall of Famers in their uh, lineup that turned out to be Hall of Famers. And they were supposed to win that series in, in four straight games, but here it is, the Flames skating in and uh, taking that series in, in six games. And uh, that really, I think, kind of got the spark totally ignited uh, with that team. And then they went in and played the series against uh, San Jose, uh, going into San Jose and, and winning the first two games, and then having some trouble winning at home, but ultimately won the series in, in a six-game in, uh, in the Saddle Dome, and then to go into the, the, the Stanley Cup Final. I'll, I'll never forget... Uh, the uh, the day of uh, of uh, Game Six in the uh, in the Saddle Dome, uh, going down to the dome in, in the morning, and so many people, fans, all around the Saddle, and they were already in a celebratory mode, uh, and that was the the morning of the game that uh, didn't start for hours before uh, after that, and uh, then coming down the the uh, for the game two hours beforehand, uh, uh, walking or seeing all the crowd in the uh, in the parking lot areas and all around the building. And then going into the building, and no fans had been in at that point, but seeing so many uh, family members of Flame people that were there in anticipation that this was going to be the night the team would win the Stanley Cup. I got a little bit worried, actually, when I walked into the Dome that night through the through the back door that we all came in on as media people and, and the players went into and that type of thing and saw so many of the uh, family members, members that had come in from out of town uh, you know, wanting to be there in case the team won. There was nothing wrong with that. The unfortunate part was sometimes when you see something like that, you say, oh, boy, that's pushing an awful lot of pressure, additional pressure on, on the players to have some success. But as it turned out, they certainly made it a great uh, battle, and with uh, six minutes and 47 seconds left, uh, Marty Jelena uh, going to the net uh, on a play uh, led by Oleg Sabrikin, had uh, Sabrikin get the puck to the net and was uh, knocked away by the goaltender. Javi Bulin went off the leg of, uh, of Jelena, and from some camera angles, it was across the line and in the net. Uh, however, play just continued on, and then at the stoppage in play, there was a 44-second break. That's the thing that uh, you know bothered me the most about all of that. That the the time they took to kind of sort of sort of review it was just 44 seconds. We've had games where they reviewed goals for eight, nine minutes after that. But at that time, uh, review wasn't really a, a major thing with the NHL. They didn't have the camera angles. And I well remember in the intermission, 
uh, between the uh, end of the third period and the start of the overtime, uh, talking with John Davidson, who was working for ABC Television at the uh, time. He was telling me that uh, during that stoppage, they were watching uh, you know replays on their monitor, and uh, there were a couple of them that they waved off, no goal. Then there was another one, and he asked them to show it again, and they showed it again, and he made the comment on the air, that's a goal. And then he looked down at the ice and saw the play had resumed, and he said right in the broadcast, oh, no. Uh, and then pointing out it was too late to do anything about it since play had resumed, and he said within seconds, there were people from uh, Andy Van Helleman, who was in charge of officials, and a couple others from the NHL were into their booth uh, inquiring about that uh, replay that they had that obviously the NHL people didn't see, even though they were in the booth about four down from where they were in that same level at the uh, at the saddle moment at the time. So that was, uh, and uh, that game, of course, would go to double overtime, and Martin Salloway, who... Uh, was a former flame uh, would score the goal in overtime that allowed uh, Tampa to win that game and tie the series at three three, and send it back to uh, to Tampa Bay for a, for a seventh and, and deciding game. So uh, um, you know there was a lot of heartbreak that night in in the Saddle Dome, but it had hoped that maybe Game Seven would be different. I thought our guys in, into Game Seven were really a fatigued group. Uh, they had seven shots on goal through the first uh, I think the first thirty eight or thirty five minutes of that game, and then and we're behind 2 nothing, giving up a goal, you know, one, you know, one in the first and one in the second. And then in the third period, Craig Conroy got a goal midway in the uh, in the third period, and that seemed to give the team some life, and they got some uh, good scoring opportunities after that, only to be stopped by uh, Nikolai Habibul and the goalie, and it ended up a 2-1 win for Tampa. And I remember after, uh, you know, after we upstairs uh, in, in the broadcast booth with our broadcast partner, Mike Rogers, uh, and then wrapping up there and handing off to you, Rob, back for the uh, the post game back in the studio in, in uh, Calgary, and then going down to the dressing room. And even then, which you know had to be twenty, maybe twenty five minutes at the end of the game, there were players of the Flame dressing room still in tears over uh, losing that game seven and, and not getting the Stanley Cup. And you know, a lot of them thought, well, maybe there'll be another opportunity soon. Uh, but uh, you know, Mike Commodore had an opportunity uh, two years later, as I mentioned earlier got the Stanley Cup, but the other guys in that room didn't have that chance. You know, there's so much, Pete, to unpack there, but the one that I think that, you know, we talk about the goal that that was in Game 6 that was never called, but I don't think people appreciate how big a save Nikolai Habibulin made with, what, two seconds left? Was it? Or four, four seconds left or something like that on Jordan Leopold, right? Yes, yes. He made an outstanding save. It looked like that was going to be a goal, and he just cut like uh, came over and, and made that that great great save because that goal certainly could have uh, would have tied the game and you know who knows where it would have gone uh, from there. But Happy Bullen played outstanding in that uh, in that series as did Kiprasov. It was just a tremendous tremendous uh, goaltending duel between uh, the two of them and uh, you know in the playoffs that year both of them had five shutouts and yeah. um, you know they were they were key factors in their team uh, getting to the to the Stanley Cup final. Well, and and nobody wants to hear this, but. You know, Tampa was a pretty amazing story, too, because they beat a very heavily favored Philadelphia club to get there, right? Yes, they did. Yeah, yeah. there's no question. They, they they were not a favored team going into the playoffs either, although they were a little more favored than the Flames were going into the playoffs. But they scored a major, major win uh, against uh, Philadelphia. And then they had a short series against the Rangers, and that may have helped them. Um, I may have helped them have a little bit more legs, a little bit less fatigue in that uh, in that Stanley Cup uh, final series that they had against the Flames. But, you know, you go back into 80, 86 was a little bit more comparable 
to 04, given that uh, the Flame team that year wasn't really favored uh, either. In fact, um, uh, you know, at one point during that season, they set a club record losing 11 consecutive games. Yep. And uh, I well remember that uh, losing streak. And Bob Johnson was coach of the Flames at that time. And Bob, the most upbeat, positive person that I ever <laughs> met in my entire time anywhere, let alone in the hockey world. And uh, I remember after the team lost the 11th game of that 11-game losing streak, it was a, a 9-1 loss in the Saddle Dome. And afterwards, Bob was meeting the media, and it was the first time and only time that I ever really saw him down uh, for any stretch of time. He was always would find a positive angle, and in the end of that, he did find a positive angle because he, he did make a comment. You know, he said Poplinski had a great shift there in the uh, in the third period. As it would turn out, the next game, Jim Poplinski would score the uh, the winning goal to end the uh, the eleven game losing streak, and that team would go on to. Uh, to get into the playoffs and then, uh, you know, defeat Winnipeg in the first round in, in three straight games. And that brought on the series against Edmonton. Uh, the, uh, the Oilers had won the previous two Stanley Cups. They'd finished 39 points ahead of the Flames during the uh, regular season. So that series was, uh, in the eyes of many uh, experts, it was going to be a mere formality. The Oilers would knock off the Flames. But uh, Flames won the, the opening game of the series, and it went on from there to get that to a to a game seven and the flames going into the old Northlands Coliseum in, in Edmonton and uh, pulling out a three, two win in that, that game seven. And that touched off a tremendous uh, amount of excitement in Calgary. Remember the team coming back on the, on the charter flight after that. And there were about 5,000 people at the small airfield off, you know, just off from the main airport waiting for the team to arrive and uh, to, to cheer on their, um, their exploits having won uh, that, series in such upset fashion against the, the big rival of Calgary, the, the Oilers. And, uh, of course, after that, it would be a series against St. Louis and then a uh, final series against Montreal. And I still, I still believe that team in 86 would have won the Stanley Cup if it hadn't been for the fact that they blew game six of the, uh, of the series against uh, St. Louis, which was, of course, the Stanley Cup semifinal series or the uh, uh, Campbell Conference final. I well remember that game. It looked like it was going to be a win uh, going into the, almost the midway point of the third period. Flames had a three-goal lead. Uh, St. Louis would come back and score three goals, ascend it into overtime, and then the late Doug Wickenheiser uh, would score in, uh, in the um, overtime period. And uh, St. Louis would win that game to send the series back to Calgary for a, for a game seven. And uh, that game seven in the, uh, in the Saddledome, uh, Carl Patterson had the winning goal. The Flames winning it, and um, and then of course would move on to play Montreal, and and um, that series started with one day off. There was one day in between Game Seven of that series against St. Louis and the start of the Stanley Cup Final in the Saddle Dome against uh, Montreal. And while the Flames won the first game uh, at home, uh, they were they just ran out of gas and lost the next four games. And Montreal won it in, in five games, and it was after that that the Cliff Fletcher rule was adopted by the NHL. As uh, Cliff, who was the general manager of the Flames at the time, uh, he went to the uh, the NHL's uh, Board of Governors meetings during the offseason and made the suggestion that there be at least two days off uh, between the end of the uh, the semifinals or the conference finals and the start of the Stanley Cup final, and that has been the rule ever since then, at least two days. And in some of them, uh, we've had almost a week off between uh, the end of one series and the start of the Stanley Cup final. So... Uh, you know, that year, it could have been a Stanley Cup year as well. But a lot of could have been, but that's the way the game goes. Yeah, 
you, you know, Pete, it, it when you hear you tell it that way, there are a lot of I don't know if people appreciate how much the the machine has changed. The NHL has changed. It's evolved. It was still in the eighties part of that old boys club. And I'm not sure there was the same consideration given for travel and the team and the health of the players. One day. Just I'm that that boggles my mind. Right, yeah. um, and and there's other stories. What, wasn't there? Wasn't there a, a, a dinner or something that the the president's trophy team was supposed to host, but the Canadians got it because they were Montreal. That was that '89. Uh, the president's trophy was in uh, was in Montreal, I believe, that in '86. Okay, and it was '89 that Calgary was. Oh gosh, but but you know what I'm saying? Like there yeah, was, I'm. I, I'm yeah, I, I remember the uh, I remember the luncheon now. <laughs> yeah, but you still had <laughs> the year to kind of gets gets lost up in all of this. You're right, though. But but um, it, there was an old boys club to it, right? And the Calgary Flames oh, yes, were yeah. still Go fairly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, It's it's amazing how much it's changed. Oh, it's evolved tremendously from from a way back uh, way back in that time. And you know, if the Flames had won that sixth game in St. Louis that they looked like they had in their back pocket. Uh, you know, there would have been a three-day break before the start of the final, and who knows where. Who knows? But, yeah. But, yeah, you're right. It was a whole different world then in, in the hockey and everywhere else, for that matter. Yeah. Um, let's Since we did 04 and we've done 86, let's do 89 because uh, it deserves that turn. Um, it really was, and I know this is Terry Crisp's team, but so much of the foundation for this was the early work of, of Cliff Fletcher and, and Badger Bob. Um, it had been that that almost decade-long battle of Alberta, and it culminates in '89, right? Yes, that that was uh, you know that was uh, really brought it to uh, to its height, and uh, and you're absolutely right. It was the um, it was the Oilers uh, having uh, so much domination there in the uh, in the mid '80s, and then the latter part of the '80s, and the Flames, Cliff Fletcher being the, the general manager, and Bob Johnson, the coach, realized that. If the Flames were ever going to do anything, they had to build a team that could uh, could beat Edmonton. And um, you know, they they went about it, uh, making some uh, some crafty trades and also making some very good uh, draft uh, selections. Guys like Al McInnes, uh, Mike Vernon, Joe Newendike, uh, Gary Roberts. Those guys were all key guys that were players that were drafted uh, by the Flames that uh, played very important roles in that uh, run in in 1989 and. Uh, you know, the team, it was interesting. That team, you know, we talked about the underdog factor in both 86 and especially in 04. But the 80, the team in, in 89 was supposed to win the Cup. They were heavily favored right from the from the start of the year. In fact, many thought they were going to win the year before that in, in 88 uh, when they had won the first ever President's Trophy uh, by a Flame team. Unfortunately, they got beat out in the, uh, in the opening round by, or in the playoff round by Edmonton. And uh, and that was a big big disappointment because it was the Olympic year here in Calgary had the Winter Olympics and a lot of excitement. Well, maybe we could tie the two together, Winter Olympics, and then later on a Stanley Cup triumph. But that uh, didn't uh, materialize. Uh, but uh, certainly it, it, the uh, tables were turned in, in in '89. And even though the Flames were so overwhelming favored or favored uh, by right around the NHL going into the uh, into that season and into the playoffs, uh, they got a very very major scare. <laughs> in the uh, in the first round against uh, Vancouver, and that was a, a series come somewhat similar to the Flames and Oilers in '86, in that the Flames had finished 37 points ahead of the uh, Canucks, and uh, were supposed to win that series quite easily. But it went to a game seven, 
in the Saddle Dome and uh, overtime at that. And uh, Vancouver was uh, had the better scoring chances in the uh, overtime period in that game seven. Mike Vernon uh, coming up with some outstanding saves uh, uh, in that time. Stan Smeal was robbed. Uh, uh, Tony Tanty was robbed. And he also made a couple of other big stops before uh, at um, 1942 of that overtime period. Uh, Jim Poplinski, uh, uh, after a pass from Hoke and Lube, sending the puck right up in front of the uh, Vancouver net and advanced off the skate of Joel Otto and into the net, uh, giving the Flames uh, that victory and uh, clinching the series in, in seven games. So that was a huge, huge scare that uh, the team had. And, and after that, it kind of it was a little bit easier sledding, um, you know, winning uh, winning the uh, the next two rounds rather easily over Los Angeles and uh, and uh, Chicago. Uh, before moving on to play uh, Montreal in the Stanley Cup final that would end in, in six games. But there were some big scares in that series as well because after winning uh, the first game against the Canadians, Montreal came back to win games two and three uh, to grab a 2-1 uh, series lead and a lot of concern as to whether that team could pull off uh, a Stanley Cup triumph but then would win the next three games, capitalizing, uh, excuse me, culminating it with the uh, victory in uh, the Montreal Forum on uh, May 25th of 1989 and the only visiting team ever to win a Stanley Cup in uh, in the forum. Anytime the Cup had presented there previously, it was Montreal Canadiens that were winning it, but on this night it was the uh, was the Flames and uh, that was another, uh, you know, an outstanding, uh, outstanding contest and, you know, there are a lot of things that uh, stand out from that night. One thing that stands out was the reaction of the Montreal crowd at the end of the game. I'll never forget the... Uh, the Flames, of course, had, had won the game. They got two goals in the third period from Doug Gilmore to win it 5-3. Uh, and when the game ended, uh, you know, a lot of sadness in Montreal. Their beloved Canadians had lost and were eliminated. But most of those fans didn't leave the building. A lot of times when the, uh, the team loses out in the playoff series, uh, the fans leave the building uh, if their home team has lost. But in this case, most of them stayed and gave the Flames quite an ovation uh, when the cup was presented and they paraded it around the ice at the uh, Forum. So I thought that was an, an outstanding gesture uh, on the part of the Montreal fans that will always uh, remember from that uh, particular night in Montreal. And the flight home was somewhat memorable, wasn't it? Yes, it was uh, very, very memorable because uh, Bearcat Murray was the Flames trainer. His son, Alan, was uh, an assistant trainer with the team. And Al, um, Al was the guy that um, made, of all the, uh, made all the connections to get the Stanley Cup uh, from the underbelly of the plane and into the washroom in the back of the airplane so that the uh, team could celebrate uh, while having that uh, four, four-and-a-half-hour flight back to, uh, to Calgary. And uh, because the NHL had kind of stipulated that the trophy was not to uh, come out from underneath the plane until the team arrived back in Calgary. Of course, they didn't have the guy with the white gloves going around with it as they do uh, today to make sure everything is looked after uh, properly. But, uh, you know, the, uh, as the flight got uh, airborne and on its way to uh, Montreal, or by, from Montreal to Calgary, um, uh, Alan went back and uh, they had a sign on the washroom for nobody to enter it that it was not working and anyway as the fight got going Al Murray went back and uh, opened up the door and brought out the Stanley Cup and that got a tremendous roar of applause from the people that were on the plane flame players were there, management as well as uh, uh, family, some family members wives etc of uh, flame players that were on the team and uh, the party just uh, continued with the Stanley Cup being there at one point they thought it would be a good idea uh, you know, to get everybody into a uh, pitcher and had the 
everybody go kind of to the back of the plane, but the uh, plane then <laughs> started to <laughs> nosedive from the back end, and uh, the uh, the flight attendants and the air and the uh, pilots uh, quickly cautioned everybody to get back to their their seats. But the party nonetheless continued uh, continued on. Uh, myself, I didn't get involved too much in that party. I had um, I actually had a had a couple of beer on, on the flight, and then I had made a commitment the day before that I would appear on Canada AM, a CTV program that they had in the in the morning. Uh, I would appear for them live in front of the Saddle Dome on on the Friday morning uh, after that Thursday night game, either to talk about how the Flames won the cup and uh, or set up game number seven, which would have been on on the Saturday night in uh, Calgary. So. Um, after uh, being with them briefly, I kind of went up to the front of the plane and uh, just relaxed and had a little bit of a sleep so I could make sure that I was <laughs> well aware and awake to do the uh, the commitment for Canada AM. So that was, uh, but the team got back home here in Calgary about 2 or 3 in the morning, 3 or 4 in the morning, and uh, I went right to the Saddle Dome and they went right to the bar to continue the party. In conversation with Peter Marr, our guest here on the original Six Feet conversation by the way sport calgary conducts research into sport issues in our city did you know that the gross municipal amateur sport product in calgary is over 1.2 billion dollars a year visit www.sportcalgary.ca to learn more still got to do the liners pete we always got to do the liners you know that um (laughs) that that doesn't change the, the one thing and i won't you mentioned phil pritchard the keeper of the cup phil pritchard was around at that time um, and, and I'll save this story. I'll let Colin Patterson tell it. But one to me, one of the true great uh, 89 stories is that the, this tradition of a day with the cup started with Colin Patterson. Yes, it did. Uh, Colin, of course, was from uh, the Toronto area. And uh, he, of course, was home for the summer. And, of course, Colin was the guy uh, that scored the all-important first goal of the game in, in Montreal that night. The Flames uh, won, the, uh, won the Stanley Cup with the Hispler hockey stick. And he's got an interesting story about how that arrived and all the uh, attention he got from that. But I thought that was a key goal. Montreal would come back and, and tie the game. And then in the second period, uh, I thought it was a goal that made a big, big difference. It was Lanny McDonald basically coming out of the uh, penalty box, taking a pass from uh, Joe Newendike and going in to score the goal on Patrick Waugh to put the Flames ahead 2-1. Uh, to one. And they never trailed after that. And, uh, uh, and I always thought that that goal... Um, lifted uh, the the uh, the confidence level and took a little bit of the edge off the Flame players because prior to that they were playing rather tentatively and when Lenny scored that goal it just seemed to change the fortunes of the night and the course went on to the victory but to, uh, to uh, tell the story about the uh, the Stanley Cup uh, Colin was um, Colin was with Mr. Pritchard uh, the night before uh, and um, you know he'd mentioned the fact that uh, he was staying in his parents' place and. Um, and uh, Mr. Pritchard said he'd bring the Stanley Cup over to Collins Place the next day, uh, which was a Saturday morning, I believe. And uh, he and Colin went about, and his family went about inviting a whole bunch of people to come over to his home so that they could have a close-up look at the uh, Stanley Cup when uh, Pritchard brought it to their their house. And uh, he was quite late arriving, as I understand, <laughs> and so there was some concern on Collins' part and the members of his family as to whether or not the Cup would ever show up at his place. But ultimately it did. And uh, they had a they had a rousing uh, reception with it, with lots of pictures being taken and all of that uh, type of deal. And uh, it was from that point on that the NHL 
uh, went about having each player having one day with the cup during the, the off season and become quite a tradition that started with uh, that event at Colin Patterson's parents' place in the, uh, in Toronto, like I in said, the Toronto area. Like I said, I hope to get Colin on and get him to tell the story, but just to follow up on Phil Pritchard. Yeah, he can tell it in a lot more detail than I can. Yeah, but the best part, Pete, is we were talking about how in the 80s it was still an old boys club. The Stanley Cup arrived in the back of a Honda Civic at Collins' house. <laughs> that's, that's, right. that's the best part. All right. Um, look, we're going to get a chance to do this, I'm sure, a couple more times. So I want to do something that I've been dying to do with you for a long time. You've been kind enough to take us through the three Stanley Cups. But now, Pete, I think it's fair to, safe to say that the statute of limitations has run out on, on some things. And, and I, I finally want to ask some questions of Peter Marr that have not been asked in a long time. And I just happen, take me back about, you know, 20 minutes ago we were talking about that miracle 2004 run. You talked about when the Flames clinched the playoff spot against the uh, Arizona, I guess they were still the Phoenix Coyotes at that point, not the Arizona yep. Coyotes. Yep. Um, what do you remember about that goal call? I remember that uh, I yelled out a yeah, baby. Yep. Now, and the first thing I said, playoffs. <laughs> yeah, baby. And um, that was in recognition of the fact that it had been so long since we had any uh, playoff uh, action for the uh, the Flames. That seven years that I talked about earlier was such a tremendous relief to finally say the Flames are actually going to have some playoff uh, hockey. And um, and that um, you know that ignited uh, a huge roar from me with um, the playoffs and the yeah, babies and all that type of thing. And, um, you know, just, um, you know, that was an afternoon game, as I recall. And, it, you know, it brought on a lot, of, uh, a lot of great reminiscing of fun things that weren't so good prior to that. And to have it finally see the team get back into a playoff was such a, a tremendous, tremendous relief. And, um, you know, the fact that I said uh, playoffs was something that kind of just spurred in my mind just as the, uh, uh, the game came to an end and the team had picked off that one nothing victory to clinch the, the playoff position. So... What it also did was spawn some unique merchandise. And here in my home office, I am holding a brand new, unopened, talking bottle opener. And I forgot. That's right. <laughs> I have it. And it says, press here to play. Now, I don't know if this is going to work, Pete, because this is 16 years old. But I'm going to hold it up to the microphone. I'm going to see if this works. Nope. The battery's dead. Yeah, no, I've got two or three of them here, and they don't work either. No. <laughs> what was the story? But yeah, no, that, I'm try that that came out by uh, a company that um, that uh, decided to do that. And the, the one that stands out the most for me about uh, that uh, bottle opener was when um, when I uh, received some copies of it. Of course, I handed out to various family members, and I remember my granddaughter every time she'd come over to my house, Haley. She'd uh, she'd come around me and she kept playing that over and over and over again, hitting that button to uh, uh, to signal that roar of playoffs and uh, yeah baby and all that type of thing. And she had a great time having a lot of fun with that. Uh, going back to that uh, 2004 time, they also came out with them. Uh, I think it was a, a keychain too, with also had that yeah. on there as well with the uh, plus. Uh, a couple of other items. So it was, yeah, it became quite a quite a feature there over that uh, period of time. Uh, all I remember is it, it to me, it, it sort of just appeared out of the blue, right? Like, I mean, you know, the playoffs were obviously a big deal, but all of a sudden, of all things, here's this bottle opener, and here's Pete. Like, it was fantastic, <laughs> right? 
Yeah, well, I remember this guy gave me a phone me and asked me if it was okay to do it, and he said he had the NHL's permission and all this type of thing, and I did a little bit of checking and then uh, said, yeah, go ahead, and then the next thing you know, this thing arrived, and it became uh, uh, quite a popular item uh, around the city of Calgary. There were others that were done by other uh, NHL broadcasters around that time as well, and uh, so this was something that uh, was kind of a, a novelty item that, uh, that was put out by this company, uh, from various uh, teams in, in the NHL, but it you know it was something that only lasted for a little while, and then we never heard tell of this guy or these people again. So was it was, wasn't there a Phil kind of an interesting remembrance of of '04? Wasn't there a Phil Rizzuto one too, Pete, as a Yankees fan? Yes, there were, but yes, there was a uh, yes, there was a Yankee one with with uh, with Phil Rizzuto, and I had <laughs> I had a cop, I had that one as well. <laughs> not surprised. <laughs> All right, now this one. I'm not sure. I need to know this story on this, Pete. I've never ever asked you. This is a question I've never asked you about. In the middle of that playoff run, there was a picture of you in a green hard hat in a hot tub, and that was in the Calgary Sun. How did that all come about? Uh, okay, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the um, the hot tub. Uh, company, but anyway, uh, it- I remember getting a um, getting a call from the Calgary Sun. Uh, one of the ladies there asked me if I would be interested in uh, in putting on the hard hat, which of course was the the symbol that the Flames had that Absolutely. year. Absolutely. Uh, after each game or after each win, they would make a presentation to one of the players of the uh, of that hard hat, and that kind of uh, is something that a lot of teams could do. Not always with a hard hat, with various different kind of hats or different kind of objects that they do have, but. This was one of the very first times that that happened. I believe it was Craig Conroy's idea to do that uh, with the uh, with the Flames. And so anyway, I had this phone call asking me if I'd go to uh, this uh, store and uh, go into the hot tub <laughs> with the hat on and uh, and have my picture taken with a couple of uh, young ladies that were there. So yeah, that was another one that uh, that came in kind of out of left field from anywhere, and uh, I was. You know, more agreeable to one because that was the way it was at that particular point in time. So much flame fever that everybody was uh, was wrapped up in it, and a lot of people were wearing those those hard hats, um, you know, in celebration of what the team was doing uh, during that great uh, great playoff run. So yeah, that was another interesting little sidelight aspect that went on in '04. Yeah, there was so many uh, things, and you you know you kind of hit the nail on the head, Pete. It's just that. I've never seen anything like it. Like the the first series against Vancouver was huge and crazy, and everybody loved it. And then, oh no, now they're going to play Detroit, and and you know, yeah, it's great. Everybody's going down to you know the seventeenth and all of that. The Red Mile, that's cool, but they're not going to. Well, I had a real interesting story of the Red Mile. Okay, I never got there, but um, <laughs> it was interesting, Rob. After um, after the Flames eliminated San Jose, they they won that series to win the uh, the Western title uh, in Game Six. Was in the uh, Saddle Dome. And after it signed off uh, from the broadcast upstairs and going down to join yourself and Mike Rogers and others in the uh, in the hot stove lounge on the uh, post game show, as I was waiting to go on the elevator uh, to go downstairs, there were two young ladies came over, and uh, one of them said, "Are you going to the Red Mile tonight?" And um, I, I made the comment to them, "No, I don't think so. I'm, I, I've never been there, and I've got to get ready now for the Stanley Cup final after I finish off my work here." So. No, I'm going to have to uh, miss out on the Red Mile, but I'm sure it's going to be quite a night there. And the other young lady perked up and said, no, you know, if you go to the Red Mile, they treat you like a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was the same year of the Justin Timberlake uh, situation yes. uh, at the Super Bowl, 
with the uh, malfunction. Yeah. And uh, I got the more I got thinking about the fact that I'd be treated like a rock star. I thought, well, maybe I could do something like he did, and I wouldn't get arrested. But that was. <laughs> It was a fleeting thought that I had go through the back uh, of my mind at that particular point in time. Thought it was kind of uh, kind of interesting that those young ladies would come over and make the comment about going to the Red Mile. But I never got there at any time. But certainly it was quite a party time that went on uh, over that playoff run that year. And they, they'd like to ignite that again. But uh, unfortunately since then, the team has not been able to get on a real good playoff run. But hopefully it'll change when hockey gets going again. Absolutely. All right, I'm going to go back further. You, you, this one isn't so much the statue of limitations as Ronald, because it really has, and you have shared it. But I do love this story because for us who know you, you are one truly the most professional, kindest human beings I've ever been around. I don't know anybody who's ever said a cross bad word about Peter Marr, yet somehow in the height of the Battle of Alberta, you and Wayne Gretzky somehow got kind of on the opposite ends of things, but you worked it out. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, that was in 1986, and that was, of course, uh, the year that the Flames that we talked about earlier upset the uh, the Oilers in that uh, second-round uh, playoff series. And uh, I well remember it was the uh, morning of Game 5, and uh, we're up at the uh, Northlands Coliseum. The, the Flames had won the previous game. It was, uh, the series was tied at, at 2-2. And um, uh, hanging out outside the Oilers' dressing room, uh, just as they were coming off the ice after having had their morning skate, which is the time when we did have recording interviews with, uh, with players that uh, we would use later on in the day in the uh, pregame show and, and other, uh, other shows that we'd have at the radio station. And so there were five Oilers that I asked for interviews. We didn't, we didn't go into the dressing room in those days, as they do now, or at least they did until they were quarantined earlier. Um, so you did your interviews out in the hallway, adjacent to the uh, dressing rooms, and there weren't many, many media people around back in those days like there are now. But anyway, I asked five Oilers to interview, and all of them kind of brushed me off. So I then went to uh, Bill Tuelli, who was the uh, director of uh, public relations, media relations at that time for the Oilers. I said, Bill, I'm trying to get an interview with one of your players to kind of balance off our uh, pregame show for tonight, but um, you know, I can't get anybody to uh, agree to an interview. And Bill made the comment, well, we're not talking to you. And I was stunned there for a moment, and I said, I beg your pardon, what seems to be the issue? Well, he said, we heard that you called Wayne a whiner in the game uh, the other night. Um, on your broadcast many times. And I said, I beg your pardon. I didn't say it once, let alone many times, as you were referring to here. And in fact, if you would like, I'll arrange to get a uh, tape recording of the game because uh, that was the way things were in those days, tape recording. <laughs> and so um, I said, I'll get that for you. You can listen to it, and that'll prove that I didn't call Wayne Weiner at any time uh, during the course of uh, of that game. So we went in on onto the conversation and Finally, he said, okay, I'll, I'll go in and get you a player. And so he went into the uh, other dressing room, and out came Charlie Huddy. And so I did a three-, four-minute interview with uh, with Charlie, and uh, then he went back to the dressing room, and I went back to Bill, thanking him for getting me a player. But then he said, you know, I'd really like to talk to Wayne here as well. Uh, I've always had a good relationship with him, and I, I'd like to clear, this, uh, clear the air with this uh, assumption that you people have. And so... Um, he, uh, he went back into the dressing room and said, well, Wayne will be out in about 15 minutes or so, so I'll wait around. So uh, he, uh, you know, later Wayne would come out, and we had a chat, and I said, oh, I understand you're upset with, uh, with uh, something that is perceived that I said uh, during the broadcast the other night uh, from Calgary. And he said, 
yes, um, uh, we heard something about it, and uh, you know, none of us were very happy about it. And I said, well, as I told Bill, I'm going to provide him with a tape recording to prove that I didn't call you a whiner at any time uh, during that game. And then and Wayne kind of nodded, and then he said to me, he said, you know, there are times when uh, we're not playing games and I'm driving around my car in Edmonton here and I would tune into the Flames broadcast and I always found you a very fair broadcaster so I was a little bit leery when I heard this comment that uh, was being mentioned about you. So that, that clarified uh, that situation. And uh, so, uh, and of course, the next year uh, when the Flames had a game in Edmonton, we always had, there was always um, one game the Flames and Oilers would play when I ended up with a one-on-one interview with Wayne. And so this uh, particular uh, year, the, the following season, um, he was um, he was having another one of those great years with the uh, the Oilers. And so after the morning trade, they asked him for an interview, and he said, uh, "Well, they don't want me doing interviews now during the morning of the game. They prefer to wait until after the game." And so I said, "Well, okay, that's too bad that we won't have our annual interview." And then he then he stopped and he looked at me and he said. Uh, go way out over there, and he pointed to a, to a direction underneath the bowels of the uh, the building. He said, I'll meet you there in 15 minutes. So uh, out of sight from everybody, I was there with my recording device and recorded a five-minute interview with Wayne. So we've always had a, a great, great relationship, and there was just that little downtime in, in 86. But that's how fierce the rivalry yeah. was between the Flames and the Oilers that was even extending into the broadcast booth. One last one for you, Pete, and I know we're gonna we'll we'll do this again. I, unfortunately, I think we're gonna have to because we we got a you know a little bit of time before everything gets back to normal. But one of the possibilities was that we might have seen sports and hockey played in front of an empty building. Now I know our friend Eric Dehatchek at the Athletic has written about this, but I want you to tell me the story of when the uh, New Jersey Devils and the Calgary Flames played in front of less than four hundred people. Yes, it was in front of 334 people <laughs> back in 1987. It was, I'll never forget that day because the Flames had gone to the arena in the Meadowlands uh, for their morning skate, uh, went back to the hotel. It was a bright, sunny at the time. There was some, uh, there was some talk of um, a major storm coming for uh, that area, which was just in the outskirts of New York City. And so get back to the hotel. I was doing my uh, game preparation and I uh, got a phone call uh, on the, um, the hotel phone. Didn't have uh, cell phones in those days. And it was Al Coates, uh, who was, of course, part of the Flame management team, mentioning that the, uh, the bus that would take us to the arena was going to leave a half an hour earlier than planned because of the storm, which at that point was starting to, uh, was starting to uh, become very uh, prevalent in uh, that area. So anyway, we get on the bus, which was a half an hour earlier than we were supposed to. I think we were supposed to leave at 5. We were leaving at 4.30. And it took the normal 20 minutes to go from the hotel to the arena for that bus. And so the guys arrived at the arena well, well in advance of the game. But as the snowstorm picked up, uh, the uh, New Jersey players uh, weren't leaving early. They were leaving, I guess, at their standard time. They would leave to drive to the arena to get there. So uh, the Flames dressed. They went on the ice three different times for warm-ups. While they waited for the um, for the uh, Devils to get their complement of players so they could play the game. Now Bob Johnson was coach of the Flames. He was standing outside the uh, dressing room area because the players on the Devils as they came in uh, would have to walk by where he was, and he was making a counting of their uh, of their players as they uh, as they came in. And uh, the league rule at that time was if you had fourteen or I think it was fifteen or fourteen players, uh, you had to play the game. So Bob at one point had calculated they had fifteen players there. 
So he went to Cliff Fletcher, the Flame General Manager, and said, hey, let's get this game started and because uh, they've got enough players now to have the game. But then um, they went into the, the referees weren't there. Uh, I had just arrived prior to that. They were late getting there. They had to walk from a hotel, which was uh, across the turnpike uh, from the building, and they walked across that in that uh, storm to finally get there. So the officials were there. Flames were there, obviously, and uh, Bob Johnson felt the Devils had enough players to start. But then when uh, they went into the dressing room, they could only find 12 players. As apparently they hid a couple of them, or three of them, in, in a, another area. They were waiting for their two top players to arrive, who apparently were driving together. And as I mentioned, there were no cell phones in those days, so he had no idea where these players were. Patrick Sundstrom was one of those players, and there was another guy. Anyway, when they finally arrived and got dressed, the game started. And that was about an hour and a half, two hours, after the uh, schedule, the starting time for the game. And... Uh, as, as was mentioned there, and the fans didn't get there. They didn't. It was such a stormy, stormy night. Nobody wanted to venture out, other than the 334 that got there. Of course, when um, you know uh, we started off our pregame show, Doug Barkley was my color commentator at the uh, time, and uh, so we started off our pregame show at the normal time, assuming that the game was going to start uh, on time. But of course, we didn't know what was going on, you know, underneath the stadium and. Uh, uh, whether players weren't there or were there and that type of thing. We saw the Flames go on the ice, go off the ice, go on the ice, go off the ice, go on the ice, go off the ice again. So it was. So we just kept going on interviewing as many people as we could. The broadcast location was uh, down in the, kind of in the seating area, and so we were interviewing anybody that was around, some media people from Calgary, Eric Patrick, who mentioned was one of them, George Johnson, and uh, there were other people that were interviewed just to fill in the time. And one of the people that we interviewed was Martha Johnson, who was Bob Johnson's uh, wife. And, of course, her son, their son, Mark, was a member of the, uh, of the devil. So we were, she was a, a very talkative lady, as Bob was. So, um, anyway, we had her on for, for an interview. And in about the middle of that interview, uh, there was an announcement on the public address system. So every time there was an announcement on the public address system, uh, we would stop the interview so we'd get an update on what was uh, happening with regard to the, the game. And at this particular point, uh, the uh, PA announcer uh, made the announcement. Uh, and I want to thank you people that are here for the game and braving your way through. And we want to apologize for the delay at the start of the game. And as a show of our appreciation, we'd like to have you go to uh, such and such a, uh, a spot at, at near gate such and such. And uh, you would receive a T-shirt as a commemorative uh, souvenir of tonight's game. So the minute that uh, was out of the mouth of the PA the announcer, it was Martha taking her headset off, getting up and rushing right off to that area so she could get her T-shirt. So it was kind of a, a funny, interesting part of it. And I would later find out that she never got the T-shirt because they had to leave an address. And Anyway, uh, she never got one. So we couldn't finish that interview and she didn't get her T-shirt. So, But eventually the game did get played. And um, uh, the uh, it felt like there was a practice more than a game. You know, when you broadcast games, you like to hear the crowd noise. And, of course, there was such a little crowd noise that was uh, being uh, produced by the 334 people that were in this almost 20,000-seat building. Uh, so it was a real it was a real different type of situation as the game went on. And the Devils won 7-5. And, you know, the guy I really felt bad for was Doug Dadswell. He was the guy that uh, Flame Coach Johnson had designated to be the starting goalie. They just called him up from the, uh, from the minors. They were giving Mike Byrne uh, a rest on, on the, uh, this night. And uh, poor Doug had the flu. He didn't want to tell anybody for fear that he might not get the starting assignment if he told uh, the coach or management that he, that he had a, a boat with the flu. So he went out with that, played the game, unfortunately lost 
seven to uh, five. But uh, that is a night that'll uh, stand out forever. Uh, and uh, you know, it was was such a strange, strange feeling all the way around that night, that day. Uh, Peter, I appreciate you telling that story. Um, listen, one of the traditions on this podcast that we end with is that we ask our guests to give us a hidden Calgary and area gem. And I leave it wide open for you to interpret what that means. It could be a park, it could be a restaurant, it could be a coffee shop. But when we all come out of this and, and you know we're back to normal, share with us a, a Peter Marr hidden Calgary gem. Oh, uh... Well, uh, I don't know how hidden it is, but uh, uh, you're involved with this too, uh, Rob, on uh, Flame Game Nights. We are involved in dressing room experiences there. Yeah. We're uh, we're in there with a uh, former Flame player. Some fans are in there to have some food and some drink, and uh, we tell stories for a half an hour uh, in uh, about an hour before the start of each Flame game. And so uh, there's also a windows in that area so they can see the players as they get ready to uh, go on the ice and uh, come off the ice after the before and after the uh, pregame warm-up. And, it, you know, we've had a lot of fun doing those over the last uh, last four years or so and certainly miss uh, doing that at the uh, Flame home games and uh, certainly looking forward to getting back into that mode when hockey does resume. And, of course, there are more important things in the world right now than having a hockey game with uh, the coronavirus and all of the uh, ramifications that that has. And so I'm just alerting people, be safe, keep a distance, and uh, hopefully we come through this sooner than later. It may go on for a long period of time. It's going to take our patience, but it's all very important that we adhere to that and all of the rules and laws that are coming down and suggestions that are coming down from people in authority at this very, very difficult time. But certainly would like to get back to those dressing room experiences. Love it. Love it. Hey, listen, pal, really appreciate this. We will uh, stay in touch, and, and as this goes on, uh, as we do more, we might bring you back and, and ask you for some more great stories. But you are the freaking best. I love you, man. This was so much fun. Pete, thanks for doing this. Well, it's been a pleasure, Rob. Uh, an honor to do this with uh, Sport Calgary and uh, give some entertainment for the uh, for the fans during this uh, very difficult time. And uh, I know it's uh, you're a guy that likes to be on the ball and doing lots of things and being involved in many, many activities in the city. So I'm sure this must be a real, real stressful and difficult time for you. But <laughs> it's all very important that we, uh, we stay the course and uh, be safe and keep our distance. He is the legend. He is the voice. He will always be, to me, the voice of your Calgary Flames. As good a broadcaster as he was, he's a better human being. And as good a human being as he's a fantastic storyteller, too. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I ho- we Assuming this is going to go for a bit, uh, there's a good chance we'll probably bring him back and we might dive into a few more. Uh, but I miss terribly my daily conversations with Pete. I loved doing the NHL Insider with Peter Marr. Uh, I won't lie to you. It was a lot more fun before the Internet. Um, you know, when information wasn't quite as readily available, it really had a different feel to it. Uh, but even then, I just miss doing a, a daily conversation with Pete. He's such a positive guy, such a knowledgeable guy. And I said it in the opening. I'll repeat it right here. Uh, nobody's been a bigger uh, mentor in my life. Nobody's been a bigger influence in my life than Peter Mars. So really glad that he could take some time and join us. Really glad you could join us. This is the original Six Feet Conversations. Still struggling to get the name. It's a podcast. I keep calling it. It's the original six 
Feet Conversations podcast for Sport Calgary. If you enjoyed it, make sure you share it, get it out there, tell other people about it. Uh, We are going to continue to put out interviews with friends of mine that I want to introduce you to, people you need to get to know, sports people here in Calgary, people with connections to sport, all broadcasters, athletes, coaches, comedians, uh, singers, actors, nobody's off limits. We're going to get to them. Uh, Hopefully we can't get to all of them because we're back and everything's normal again. But until then, we're going to keep pumping these out and have some fun talking about our city and, again, hidden gems in our city. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of it. We're back real soon with another original Six Feet Conversation.